Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Sunday, September 20th, and this is the weekly market update. So before we get started, um, I didn't put the disclaimer up, but uh, the disclaimer is, is that this is for entertainment and educational purposes. This is not to be construed as investment advice. Uh, please do your own due diligence as it's your money and it's your responsibility. Um, before I get started, you know, the channel continues to grow. We appreciate the viewers, the new viewers. We appreciate the comments. And if you would like to support the work that we're doing, there's several ways you can do it. You can take a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence newsletter. It's 12 issues. It's $150 a year. You can become a Patreon and support me. And if you do that and do it at a minimum of $5 a month, I will send you the most recent, one time now, most recent stock that we have added to the Actionable Intelligence Alert portfolio. And if you don't want to support me monetarily, that's fine. A lot of people can't do that, don't want to do that, aren't interested in doing that. You can like the videos, you can share the videos, uh, you can make comments. So, having said that, let's get into the reality check. So, something I look forward to every year is the BP Energy Outlook that comes out every year. It's about 80 or 100 pages. It basically goes through and just talks about energy use, breaks it down by country, by types of energy, the trends in energy use, and it's very useful in my view just to see, you know, where things are going. You can get some, you can see where the growth areas are for different types of energy, what countries are consuming more energy. And in this year's review, you know, we've had now real struggles in the oil and gas industry for several, many years now. And I think BP has taken this opportunity now to, again, reshape themselves. Now, they're calling themselves beyond petroleum. They've come out and they've said they're going to all these different ESG goals I'm not going to get into. They hired a, I think, an executive vice president of sustainability or something. I saw her video the other day. She has no oil and gas experience, real in-the-field oil and gas experience. And it makes me wonder a little bit about some of these larger companies like um, Total, BP, um, several other of the larger integrateds have said the same thing. One outlier that hasn't went down this road is Exxon. And um, they're kind of staying true to their colors, I think. Now, the interesting thing about BP is, is they went through this before. Um, I think maybe 15, almost 20 years ago, they got really heavy into renewables. Maybe it wasn't that far back, but that was when Sir John Brown was still there. That's when they changed themselves from British Petroleum with the little shield. That's when they came up with that little sun, with green and yellow thing, and they made a big push into renewables, and it didn't really work out, and once a new management came in, they sold it and refocused back on oil and gas, which mostly coincided with the big price increases in oil and gas. And I suspect that the same thing is going to happen here. You know, even in the statistical review that BP does, it says that oil is going, fossil fuels are going to be with us for many, many decades. They do say that renewables are growing, 
They're going to be growing substantially. And that's probably true in the West. Not sure if that's going to be true around the rest of the world, but we'll have some more conversation about that. But the trends are undeniable. There's going to be a tremendous amount of wind put on this year and next as we come up against the PTC expirations in the uh, United States, the tax credits. So there's a tremendous amount of solar going in. Same thing. There's a credit there too, investment tax credit. So there's a lot of things going on. There's renewable mandates. So mostly these things are happening in the West, but the real energy growth areas, all you're really doing in the West is you're saying, okay, we're going to shut down coal or displace, you know, certain other energy sources for these intermittent renewable energy sources. And a company like BP, you know, also says that one of the main areas of growth is going to be natural gas, or it's not going to decline as much. You know, if you are a big company like BP that produces a lot of natural gas, by the way, you like renewables. You like the intermittency of renewables. Why? Because intermittent power sources like solar and wind require backup power. I mean, if you require, we've had this conversation many times, if you have a certain amount of demand and, you know, the different ISOs, the controllers of the grid understand that, they model that, they have data, they have AI, they know typically what the demand is going to be hour to hour through the various months of the year. And you keep displacing baseload coal and, and nuclear with intermittent renewables, you still have to meet that same model. Okay, so that's done by um, backup power sources, mostly natural gas peaking plants. So basically, a company like BP says one thing, but basically gets you going, coming and going. They won't say that, though. So it's interesting that a lot of these large oil companies, people would be like, why are these companies so um, interested in doing this? Well, I don't think they're really super interested in doing it, but they see the zeitgeist, the political winds shifting in the West, but they know that they can control the narrative, right? Because they know they're not stupid. I mean, they're not zealots. They're looking at it from a business perspective. Okay, if you want to have intermittent power, we still get you with the natural gas on the backside. So anyway, um, just to get into a few of the blurbs, uh, do I think that certain amount of wokeness and SJWness has infected a lot of these corporations? Yes. I'll put a link to the, to the video of the sustainability VP at BP now. And she's, I mean, the whole thing is just, it's kind of humorous. I mean, there's a lot of arm movements for emphasis and a lot of background music about the transition to zero, zero emissions and all these things, which is very interesting. Um, no one has answered me yet, though, how you're going to keep the 4.5 billion people that are in energy poverty, keep them from using these cheap, ubiquitous carbon, hydrocarbon sources. But that's a whole other video and discussion. You know, it's going to be interesting, you know, as the West commits uh, economic seppuku by hindering itself by imposing these high-cost energy sources on itself, these emerging markets like China and India and these places, they're not going to do that. And so I'm curious at what point, you know, that becomes an issue. Are we going to, like, go to war over the fact that China won't curb its CO2 emissions? Because, you know, you, it doesn't matter what you do in California. It only matters what happens in China. That's the largest emitter. And it's in the statistical review. 
And these places, I mean, Africa's a place that the demographics are, are going to explode over the next, between now and 2050. The majority of the population there is under 20 years old. And as they get wealthier and industrialized and urbanized, energy, energy usage is going to explode there. And it's not going to be windmills and solar panels that power, power it. It's going to be hydrocarbons. So what are you going to do? Tell them they can't develop? Are you going to lock countries out of the SWIFT system? I mean, I mean I, I'm just trying to extrapolate my mind. Okay, you impose all these things on your country here in the U.S. or in Germany like they did with the energy transition. But how are you going to force these other countries to do it? Because they're not doing it and they're not going to do it. They'll pay lip service, but they're not going to do it. It's The statistics are what they are. The facts are what they are. So that's something that a lot of people that are greens or people that believe that carbon uh, is going to heat the earth up to an unsustainable, unlivable uh, point have not been able to explain to me. And that just expands the conversation in geopolitics and all kinds of other things. But that's not the focus of this. So just a few blurbs. Renewable energy will play an increasingly important role in meeting the world's growing energy needs. Okay, uh, it will in the West because that's the zeitgeist and that's where the governments are pushing people. Um, fine, we've talked about it before. We, we're going we're gonna to do well in that environment because the mineral resources don't exist to get where everybody wants to go. So that will require a tremendous amount of new mines, new supply being brought on. That takes time, and uh, it's not just a flip of a switch. So what's going to happen is, is these desires to do these things are going to run into the realities of finiteness uh, on a round ball called the Earth, which presents opportunity for people that really understand what's going on. It says, uh, customers will continue to redefine mobility and convenience, underpinned by the mobility revolution that is already underway combining electric vehicles, shared mobility, and autonomy. This is something that's weird that they put in here this year because they actually have a slide. I didn't put it on this thing, but you can look it up, where they talk about this big growth in mobility, like we're all going to give our cars up and we're going to use robo-taxis and this kind of stuff. Uh, that could very well happen at some point in the future. I know a lot of people are working towards that. Um, I know Tesla's talk about that. As a matter of fact, they were already supposed to have the robo-taxis, but they're nowhere to be found. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of videos, especially coming out of China, showing that the autonomous uh, claims being made by Tesla, they, show these little, they have these little robot dummies that walk out in front of the car, and the car just runs them over. It doesn't stop. Uh, one of the Tesla fanboys said, well, the supercomputer in the Tesla understands that it's being fooled. It's a dummy. That's why it ran it over. Well, interesting point. Uh, probably not accurate. But anyways, I think we're a long way from this. It's not going to happen in the next year or two. But it's interesting that they put that in there. Uh, they go on to say oil and gas while remaining needed for decades. Yeah, it's going <laughs> to be a big part of the energy mix for many, many decades. will be increasingly challenged as society shifts away from its reliance on fossil fuels. Hmm. Okay. In the West, they should they should catalog this by saying mostly in the OECD countries. X, uh, the rest of the world is not. This is not what they're doing. They just can't afford it. You know, these high cost intermittent so called renewables are a manifestation of a wealthy society, not any a society that's coming out of poverty or is an emerging or frontier market. 
if you've been to those places, it becomes rapidly obvious when you go there that they're not going to throw up a bunch of solar panels. They still have the money. It's expensive to do that. It's expensive to build the grid up that way. It's expensive to deal with the intermittency. You're able to do that in a Western society because of the amount of wealth that you have, not because it's the best way to power the society. They go on to say, global energy demand continues to grow, at least for a period, driven by increasing prosperity and living standards in the emerging world. Yes, in order to have increased prosperity, it requires energy. Energy is ubiquitous, and it is, a, it is required for every activity that we do. That goes without saying. And as people get wealthier and the population continues to grow, energy use is going to grow. A transition to a lower carbon energy system is likely to lead... See, they do qualify this. They say this a lot there. Likely. Could. They don't say they're certain because nothing's certain, right? Is likely to lead to fundamental restructuring of the global energy system with a more diverse energy mix, greater consumer choice, more localized energy markets, and increasing levels of integration and competition. These changes underpin core beliefs about how the global energy system may restructure in a low-carbon transition. Okay. Demand for oil falls over the next 30 years. The scale and pace of this decline is driven by the increasing efficiency and electrification of road transportation. Again, it's going to be constrained if it does happen by the availability of the minerals that are required to build the batteries. I mean, people, I've went over this, people that are smarter than me and people that are smarter than people that are listening to this have done the math. You know, just to do it in the UK, when I talked to um, uh, a guy from Cambridge, would require like doubling the amount of copper that's being produced. It, it would consume like m most of the nickel. I mean, we're not prepared to make this energy transition. The minerals don't exist to do it. I keep telling people this and they, they just refuse to look at it. Now, it's an opportunity. I, I, I fully expect that we're going to try to do this, especially in the West. It's the new zeitgeist. It's the new religion. I get it. And that's why I gave up arguing the other side. I'm not going to argue reality. Reality doesn't care what you want it to be. It just is. And uh, that's why these minerals that do not exist in the quantities that are required to do what they say they want to do, um, the price will go up. You should buy those minerals because I'm not going to walk around with a, with a piece of cardboard stapled to a, a stick and march around and, or go counter-protest a bunch of, you know, Extinction Rebellion people. Reality will be reality. That's all. You already see it in Germany. The pushback is there. They did the big energy transition. They spent a half a trillion dollars. Their energy costs are the highest in Europe, and their carbon footprint hasn't really went down. They're burning more coal. That's reality, because people aren't going to have their living standards constricted. And that's really what's required. You have to make things smaller. You have to live denser. You have to curtail freedoms, and I'm not sure. Now, we may go there. Uh, you know, with this COVID thing, I'm kind of, you know, been a little bit shocked about how people have just been sh like sheep, you know, going along with whatever ridiculous mandate, whether it's unscientific or not, back and forth flip-flopping from these so-called experts in government, in science, ma science. So, I mean, the populace is liable to go along with anything, I guess, at this point. Uh, you know, they're so whipped down, especially in the United States, which is shocking, 
that you know that anybody that shows up with a government issued Halloween costume, they roll over and wet themselves. Ah, ma respect for authority. I mean, these people do not have our best interests at heart. Okay, so you know when they've been wrong about ev just about everything beforehand, why are, why does anybody give credence to any of these uh, scientists and these government officials? But again, we're getting off track again. We're back to what's going to happen against what we want to happen. And what's going to happen is, at least in the West, we're going to have this big push for this energy transition and the so-called electrification of transportation. And it's going to require a tremendous amount of minerals that don't currently exist. That isn't the opportunity. So I'm going to put a link to this. You may want to take a look at it over a couple days. I look at this every year. It has a lot of good information. I mean, you might not want to read through all BP's propaganda on the front end of the thing. I mean, they don't know what's going to happen. Um, but they do put the facts in there about real energy usage and growth. And you'll be shocked if you actually look at how, how big the numbers really are. See, that's the problem I think that a lot of people don't understand. How big, how many, you know, quadrillion BTUs the world uses you know or how much actual energy is required and then if you just start growing at it you know one or two percent a year you know you extrapolate that out 20 or 30 years that's a tremendous amount of energy that has to be added right so that's opportunity in my book and that's why I'm really stoked on nuclear I mean people that know what's going on I mean you're not going to build a society, at least a successful industrial society, just relying on one energy source. Even if you do go and you say you want to do renewables, which I don't like calling them that, you know, but if you want to go with those alternative energy sources like wind and solar, if you were going to go 100% there, I don't think you can do it. Uh, a lot of people smarter than me don't think you can do it. But why wouldn't you want to have an energy mix? Why wouldn't you have, want to have some nuclear in there? Why wouldn't you want to have some you know, natural gas. Why w I mean, why would you just want to focus on one, one energy source and limit yourself to that? It doesn't make sense. And if you look at like China or these other places, they're not limiting themselves. That's why, you know, they burn a lot of coal in China, but they're, they're on this huge nuclear power plant build. And, you know, we're seeing that in a lot of other countries. We just saw, you know, plants are coming online in the UAE. Uh, new plants are being announced every day. New plants are being commissioned but it's not in the U.S. or in the West. And that's really not where the growth is. You have to get away from the home country bias and just think that the center of the universe is the United States or the EU. It's not. These other places are emerging. That's where the action is. That's where the talent is. That's where the money is. I mean, I use this quip that J Jim Rogers said uh, when he wrote his books about traveling around the world, uh, Global Investor. You know, he said the place to be in 1800 was London because that was this you know up-and-coming empire right the UK if you had been in London in 1800 from 1800 to 1900 you probably had a pretty good run as the British Empire expanded around the world you would have been you would have been smart for you and your ancestors to pick up roots and then move to New York in 1900 because that was the probably the emergence in the you know the century of the United States right and then to pick up in 2000 and move to China or Asia or Singapore, or something like that, be based in Asia, because that's where the action's going to be. And it's not going to be powered by solar panels and windmills. Wanted to talk about Purchasing Managers Index. Um, I'll put a link to a site that I go to with a lot of economic statistics. What's the PMI? PMI is a forward-looking 
indicator in my book. You know, a lot of people like to look at GDP, which is looking backwards. You're looking at what already happened. It's not a good forecasting tool for what is going to happen. I like, a, like to look at purchasing manager's um, activity. What is the purchasing manager doing? Well, he's in a f manufacturing facility, and he has to buy things, right, to bring in raw materials or parts and bring them into the factory so they can create whatever goods or machines or whatever they're building in that factory. So he has to go out and buy those things. So this is an indication of the activity of those purchasing managers. It's a survey that's done in every country. They gather, they have the survey, they, uh, you know, are you buying more parts? Are you buying more raw materials? Whatever. And then this is an indicator. This is a index, if you will. And the, the, the cutoff is 50. A number above 50 indicates expansion. That means manufacturing activity is forecasted to grow. Their purchasing managers are having more activity when they're when the index is above 50, and that is a leading indicator. That's saying that they have ordered materials and stuff for manufacturing that's going to take place in the near future. So I like to look at this indicator instead of GDP. I've also shown a chart before that shows that when the PMI is above 50, that you uh, can expect to have higher raw material prices in the ensuing or subsequent six months, six to nine months, i.e. copper, energy, uh, oil, things like that usually are higher because as these folks go out and buy things, whether it's straight raw materials or, or coils of stainless steel or, you know, copper wire to wind motors, whatever they're doing, that feeds through to other companies that have PM purchasing managers that are buying even more goods. So what I'm trying to tell you that there's a lot of activity happening and there's a lot of gloom and doom in the world, even with COVID and everybody locked down still, there's still a lot, a lot of these major countries are in expansion in their economies. Now we had a major drop in economics in the spring, right? After the lockdowns happened in February, March, April, everything basically got shut down and we're coming out of that. There's also been a tremendous amount of money printing by not just the United States, but governments around the world. That's feeding into this. Do I think it's sustainable? I don't know. I'm just reporting what's happening right now. Um, we are in a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of plates in the air. There's a lot of balls in the air. It's hard to uh, make accurate forecasts. But what I'm just pointing out is um, for the perspective of the fact that uh, things are not as bad as maybe everybody thinks. I'm not saying that it's going to continue. What I am saying is that uh, we've seen the loosest monetary conditions in the history of the world going on right now, and we are seeing um, we are seeing snapbacks. We are seeing future activity doesn't look too bad. To piggyback on that, this is a chart of copper. You can see after the Basically, after COVID basically started, this thing crashed, got as low as $1.97. But you can see we've had a steady increase uh, since mid-March, okay? Everything's improving. You know, we had this uh, big move, then we had some consolidation over a couple months, and now we're moving higher again. You know, we're up to $3.12 a pound. That's a new recent high. It's not an all-time high, but it's a new, new high. And that, you know, that is consistent with what we're seeing. In the, in the purchasing managers index, we are seeing, uh, you know, increased purchases of raw materials because of manufacturing expansion, and it's translating into copper. Now, copper is a lot of times called Dr. Copper because it's one of the first, it's, it's in so many products, it's one of the 
uh, indicators of economic growth just because it's in so many products. You can see everything's aligned very nicely. The 200-day is starting to move upwards. The 50-day crossed, and then you have the 20-day. So you, you have a nice trend here, okay? Uh, if you expand the chart and look, it's not really overbought at these levels. It, it made a big move here uh, as we recovered throughout the summer. It consolidated that here, and now we're breaking out and uh, moving higher. So I don't know how high it goes. I don't know if it continues higher. I don't like to get into that game. Um, I just know that one of the copper stocks we have in the portfolio uh, basically followed this, bottomed, uh, and it, it was really had some other issues, but that seemed to, you know, it's, it's followed, the price of that stock has followed the copper price back up, and that's happened with a lot of other co um, copper producers uh, that I follow also. And, um, you know, this is, uh, this is interesting, to say the least. This is, um, you're making new highs. I will mention what, uh, you know, longer term, I'm not going to make short-term predictions, but longer term, you know, if you are going to make this transition to renewables, uh, solar, wind, these things, this is going to be the big deal. If you're going to electrify everything, um, it's just like Michael Kelly said that when I interviewed him, you know, in his paper, Electrifying the UK, you know, the grid is it's constantly, you know, if one person on your street buys an electric car, it's not a big deal for the grid, Right. Uh, just even in your neighborhood, but everybody gets one. They have to rewire the neighborhood. It's not set up for that kind of demand, okay? It's not set up to provide uh, that level of electricity uh, to to charge, you know, 20 cars on one street all at the same time. That's just not how it's set up. So in order, if we wanted to even do these things, it's going to require upgrading the transmission grid, the distribution grid, substations, what's in substations, transformers, what's inside of a transformer, huge copper windings. Um, you're, you're just going to need a tremendous amount of work and money to do this. And not only that, you know, the rest of the world that is just beginning to electrify itself and a lot of these emerging and frontier markets, and as they grow, as they industrialize, as they urbanize, that requires uh, you know, infrastructure spending, that requires, that's putting more strain. And if you look at the supply side, you're seeing the grades, the amount of large mines that are coming online is going down. The head grades at the mines are going down. The easy fruit has been picked and produced a long time ago. It's getting harder and harder to produce the same amount of copper. So uh, Robert Friedland, who discovered the, uh, was uh, instrumental in discovering and bringing the Oyutogoi mine uh, into to fruition in Mongolia and subsequently has repeated his success with an even larger mine in the DRC, has said many times at conferences that he thinks that the copper price is going to go so high you're going to need a telescope to see it. So uh, yes, he's a, he's a promoter. He's a very good promoter. But, uh, you know, this is what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter if I agree with electrifying uh, road transportation. If they were going to do it, this is going to be a beneficiary, the copper price. And that's how we should be looking at it as speculators. Okay, Vital, this is the world's largest oil trader. Uh, they trade oil around the world. I wanted to talk about what they're seeing because uh, they're seeing some things that I've been talking about that I, I'm not, this is not confirmation bias. I'm just reporting what the world's biggest independent oil trader is saying. They're saying that global stockpiles of, the, of oil will keep shrinking, offering a starkly more bullish view of the crude market than some of its rivals. 
they go on to say that global stockpile growth peaked at about 1.2 billion barrels in early summer because of COVID shutdowns. And inventories have since been drawn by about 300 million barrels. That's what the CEO of Vital said. They should drop by a further 250 to 300 million barrels in the last four months of the year. And then they go on to say, demand should stay largely unchanged at around 96 million barrels a day. That compares with Vital's view a year ago that it would be around 102 barrels a million barrels a day. And that was, let's review this real quickly, Why we're, what we're talking about here. Before COVID, we were right at around 100 million barrels a day of world demand. People thought that we were going to drop by, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 million uh, during the COVID. We found out that oil demand is really not as uh, elastic as some people thought. It only dropped by about 12 million barrels a day. It's recovered massively now, and we're only we're back to about 96 million barrels a day. And we really haven't even really opened fully up around the world. That shows you that shows you how instrumental oil is in every facet of what we do. We basically shut the world economy down, and oil demand only dropped off, uh, you know, about 15%, and now it's coming back. That that is shocking to me. Okay, that tells you that uh, it just makes me more bullish, long, uh, medium, and longer term. But anyways, you know. When he said that Vital had a, had a view before COVID that oil d- demand was going to grow to 102 million barrels a day, I agree with that because that's what we always talk about, right? That oil demand in a growing world economy is going to grow one one to one and a half percent a year, and at a hundred million barrel a day demand base, if you grow demand by one to one and a half percent, that's about you know anywhere from one to two million barrels of growth. So. What I'm saying to you is the world's going to open up. People have had enough of these lockdowns. More and more data is coming out that this thing isn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. Uh, those are the facts. Uh, Sweden has proved that. Um, it's like one guy that I know says, he says, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who have had COVID and those who are going to get it. It's going to be like the flu. It's just going to be returning probably every year. A certain amount of people are going to get it. We should take precautions. We're not going to People are already tired of sitting around in their house doing nothing. That's, I, I, I think that's going to possibly be reflected in these elections that we're getting ready to happen. People are going to, you're not, you know, you've got Biden out there talking about a nation, nationwide mask mandate. I mean, it's insanity. People, you know, yes, there's a certain amount of Karens and Kens out there that uh, are going to hide under their bed or hide in the closet and scream at people in the street that are jogging that don't have a mask on. But the majority of people... Uh, have had enough of this, are, are reasonable, they, the risks are becoming more and more clarified, and it's not that bad if you're not over 80 years old and have comorbidities. So that leads us back to the idea that, yes, we are going to have demand return, and the problem is supply has dropped off, you know, uh, has really been, cl- uh, you know, notched. And remember, this is an extractive industry. You have to replace those barrels that you're producing, and that has not been happening for many, many years. That's why I think, and a lot of other analysts think, that we're going to have a oil bull market over the next several years. And I think it's going to blow people's socks off, personally, once demand returns, because supply is not going to return as quickly, and the psyche of the um, oil producers has been damaged, I'll say that. You know, that's why with oil prices so low, that's why you have a company like BP talking like it's talking. If oil was $100 a barrel, they would not be talking about renewables. I can guarantee you that. 
One last thing here. Uh, this is a company, Okeanos Ecotankers. Um, they had a slide here. I'll put the presentation. But they're just reiterating what we've been talking about when we talk about tankers, right? A uh, high proportion of vessels over 20 years old and minimal new build odors provide fundamental tailwind. That's what we've been talking about, okay? I mean, you can blow this slide up and basically you've got, of the existing fleet, 25% of the existing fleet is 15 years or older and 7.5% of the fleet is 20 years or older. And I've already told you before, we've shown you this, that once an oil tanker gets to about 15 years of age, a lot of people don't want to use it. The survey costs go through the roof to get it, get it certified so it can carry oil. I mean, if you're a company that cares about its reputation, your risk goes up the older these tankers get. You don't want a tanker that's going to have an issue and lead to a major oil spill. So what I'm saying is, is tankers aren't being built, the tanker fleet's aging, and it's probably, you know, one of the oldest fleets that we've seen in, 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 in over 20 years, right? So I don't know when this thing's going to turn, but here's an example of what can happen. I don't like making predictions like, okay, well, yeah, next year. Next year, the rest of this year and into next year will probably be a bit weak as we work off those that oil storage, right? Because you're not moving as much oil around the world, right? You're just taking things out of storage right now. You're working down that inventory that you built up when oil prices were low. As that oil stockpiles get lower, you'll start having more tankers move oil around the world. New supply, new demand will, and you'll see a recovery probably in 21. But the problem is, is that the tankers haven't been replaced. So uh, that's when we will hopefully see what we've been um, hoping for. But I don't know. I mean, we have right now record containership uh, rates right now. Nobody forecasted that. Now, do I think that'll continue? I don't know. I'm just pointing that out. You can go ahead and Google it. You know, container ship shipping rates, all-time high. I mean, I don't know if they're an all-time high, but they're a recent high, and people were kind of taken, taken by surprise. They didn't expect it to happen. So what I'm saying is, is these companies are not building out their fleets. It's a supply-demand situation. Do I know exactly when it's going to turn? No, I don't. But these, you know, some of these companies, you know, um, are... I believe even at their current valuations and their current cash flowing potential are good uh, speculations. And I do think that at some point the supply demand dynamics will come into play and we will see a, uh, the, I don't want to call it the super cycle, but we'll see the cycle that we have been uh, looking for. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate you listening. Appreciate the support. Channel continues to grow. I think we're getting ready to crack 5,000 subscribers on YouTube, which to my mind for this little rinky-dink channel is pretty good. I will also add we've had quite a bit of um, asks for me to put these on podcasts. So I basically created a um, podcast channel on Anchor. And what that does is I, I basically take these weekly things, upload them to Anchor, and it distributes them to Spotify, Google Play, all these different um, podcast things. So I'll put a link to that. I think it has all the available um, podcast venues where if you're interested, you can go do that. You can download it. You can subscribe on Spotify. You can get notified that you can listen in your car or whatever's convenient for you. Just another way for me to meet customer demand. I'm listening to you folks. It was an easy way to do it. I didn't realize it was that easy or I would have done it, you know, a long time ago. 
but uh, that was a suggestion made by several of the you know YouTube subscribers the people have spoken John has uh, given the people what they want so uh, happy to do that when we can uh, and when it makes sense so appreciate you guys we do this because of you uh, and the support we get so uh, thanks for that and we'll talk to you next week